Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explorer, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Museum of Connecticut History curator Dave Corrigan retells the forgotten story of the Connecticut National Guard service on the Mexican border in 1916. Connecticut's 3,000 troops were among the 150,000 young soldiers tested in a hostile environment before many of them shipped out to France six months later. This episode was recorded at the University of Hartford on February 14, 2017 as part of the President's College and Connecticut Explored's Connecticut's in the American West lecture series. On to Mexico was a dream, I think, that some of the National Guardsmen had as they were dispatched to the border in 1916. Now you may ask, why was the Connecticut National Guard at the Mexican border in the first place? General Francisco Villa, the cause of it all. It's a little bit of an exaggeration, but uh, Pancho Villa was a major figure in the Mexican Revolution of 1910. He was the reason for General John Pershing's punitive expedition into Mexico in 1916, and also in the decision to send the National Guard troops to the Mexican border in that year. He's achieved a sort of a semi-celebrity status in Mexico. He's a national hero for a lot of people. He was the, the champion of the, the lower classes and the downtrodden in Mexico, of which there were a considerable number in these years. But he's also... He started his career as a horse thief and a rustler, and um, I know he's, he's responsible for the, personally for the killing of, of numerous opponents in, in Mexico. Joel Brenner portrayed him in a movie in 1952 called Via Rides, and he got the script and he really was interested in it, but he, had, he ordered it to be rewritten because he didn't think that his reputation as Joel Brenner could portray such a mean, nasty character. A little bit of background, Porfirio Diaz, who was the president of Mexico from 1877 to 1880, and again from 1884 to 1911. He was a despot, there's no doubt about it. He encouraged foreign investment in industrialization, repressed the lower classes and small farmers who suffered as a result of his patronage of large landholders and ranchers. Uh, this led to the Mexican Revolution of 1910, and he ultimately fled to Paris in exile in the following year. What then followed was 10 years of rival factions vying for power, constantly shifting military alliances, pitched battles and assassinations, and a growing but unanswered demand for broad social reform by the countries dispossessed, who Pancho Villa and Emilio Zapata sought to champion. In 1915, Venustiano Carranza emerged as the leader of the Revolutionary Constitutional Party, and he was recognized by U.S. President Woodrow Wilson as the head of the de facto Mexican government in 1915. Now Villa and Carranza had been allies, they had been all these shifting alliances, they had been on the same side and were at this point um, a growing dispute between the two led to their split. In September of 15, there was a November of 1915, there was a decisive battle between their respective forces. Villa was soundly defeated but he remained a threat to Carranza raiding towns in northern Mexico and attacking Carranza's federal army. 
Now, on the night of March 9, 1916, Pancho Villa and 500 of his soldiers attacked the border town of Columbus, New Mexico, leaving 18 American civilians and soldiers dead. There was an army post in Columbus. Uh, it was home to the 13th Cavalry, I think. And there were army posts all along the border from Arizona, New Mexico, all across Texas down to the Gulf of Mexico. Most of these bases had been built since the 1850s when the United States acquired a lot of this territory in the, the Gadsden Purchase. Now this attack on Columbus was not the first time that Vila's troops had killed American citizens. On January 11, 1916, a group of Vilistas stopped a train in Santa Isabel in Chihuahua State and they forced 19 mining engineers from the American Smelting and Refining Company to get off shot them all with just one man surviving by playing dead. There was not a great response, a military response of any kind on the part of Woodrow Wilson. He was very concerned with what was happening in Europe at the time, did not want to take any chance of fomenting a war with Mexico, probably thinking that at some point he was going to have to send troops to, to France. Theodore Roosevelt, on the other hand, had no qualms about calling for an invasion of Mexico to, to uh, vanquish the, the, the dead Americans. But Villa's attack on Columbus was intended to embarrass Carranza and to provoke a response from the United States. This is the front page from the Hartford Current on 11 March 1916, the day after the raid. And you can see in these are all these towns along the border pretty much every one of them had a military base, a military fort or outpost of some sort. The cartoon from the Washington Star, the, the day of the, after the raid in, on Columbus, you can see the smoking ruins of the town in the background, uh, Uncle Sam jumping over the, the fence into Mexico in pursuit of Villa saying, I've had about enough of this. The major figures involved with Pershing's, the key officers involved in the punitive expedition, a recognizable name here is General First Lieutenant George Patton was one of was one of Pershing's aides. He kind of cut his teeth on this in this expedition. And another interesting connection, Benjamin Fulois, who, who was in charge of the first Aero Squad, was a native of Washington, Connecticut. And he led the first Aero Squadron, which was the precursor to the Army Air Corps and the first airplanes to fly in a U.S. military operation. They were used primarily for surveillance and for carrying messages from Pershing's troops that had, had expanded into Mexico and the base camps back in, in Texas. There's a good article on Benjamin Fulois in the latest issue of Connecticut Explored. This is the illustration of how far into Mexico the troops penetrated. It's about 400 miles from Columbus to Parral down here in the south. The, the presence of the American troops in Mexico was not a very popular event and the, the, the troops received very little in the way of support from the, from the Mexicans along the way. They started from Culberson's Ranch in New Mexico and from Columbus over here. And this Colonia Dublon was kind of the staging area. And the troops started off in March, and actually it was by, by the end of May, early June, the actual, actual pursuit of Pancho Villa was over. They weren't getting anywhere. He was hiding in the, in the mountains. Pershing was having trouble keeping his troops supplied. The planes were unable to, to fly over the mountains. Just the engines weren't strong enough. 
The trucks were breaking down. It was a, it was a real supply problem. There were a few skirmishes here and there. There were actually some battles between Carranza's forces, the Federal Army, and Pershing's troops. And after, after June, they were basically just holed up in, in one of these larger towns, making sure that, that uh, everybody kind of behaved themselves, but they were, not, they were not venturing out into the countryside trying to actually capture anyone. And then by February of 1917, they were back home, and in April of that year, the United States entered World War I. Originally, Wilson had said that National Guard troops would probably not be called up, but the situation was, as I just described it, in Mexico was, was not tenable. And they were, with, with all the, uh, the, the regular army forces in Mexico, the towns along the border were susceptible to Pancho Villa's attacks and um, there were bandits in the area. It was, it was a very unstable situation. So in, on June 19th of 1916, Wilson called out, federalized the National Guard under uh, fairly recent legislation that had allowed him to do that. And he, he was quoted in the Hartford Current as saying, this call for militia is wholly unrelated to General Pershing's expedition and contemplates no additional entry into Mexico except as may be necessary to pursue bandits who attempt outrages on American soil. So it was a very limited duty uh, along the border, but not penetrating into Mexico. Connecticut sent two regiments of infantry, two troops of cavalry, the Field Artillery Regiment, the First Company of Signal Corps, the Ambulance Company, and the Field Hospital. This is some photos of the Troop B Cavalry at their armory in West Hartford. I can see the recognition <laughs> across the room. That's now, it's across the street from what's the Butterfly Restaurant yes, on Farmington Avenue. Yeah. Oh my. And, it's, yeah. and it's now the, uh, it's the home to, I don't know, innumerable medical offices and, yeah. and it's a few photos of the, the troops parading down Main Street in Hartford and crossing the Founders Bridge on their way to Camp Holcomb, named for Governor Holcomb at the time, in Niantic in June of, 20, of 1916. The troops were cheered along the way on Main Street as they, wow. as they passed through the city. It was a, very reminiscent of the send-off for the troops that left Connecticut for the Spanish-American War back in 1898. They were very enthusiastic and of course, the cry here was on to Mexico in 1898. It was on to Cuba, which they never made either. So I mean, they were they were 0 for 2 after after 1917. But they did make it to France in great numbers. This is a quote from James Howard of Troop B Cavalry. I thought it was really interesting. Of course, we knew our immediate destination was Niantic, but where we were to proceed from that point, no one knew. Youthful imaginations recently had been kindled by a reading of Prescott's glowing history of the conquest of Mexico. To follow the path of Cortez, to storm the heights of Chapultepec after the manner of Tom Seymour in 1846, to look upon the lakes and palaces of Mexico, the most ancient city of America, to encamp among the temples of a vanished race, was ever a more fascinating prospect offered to a soldier of fortune. That's a great quote. and. Um, yeah. I think it probably captured a lot of the feeling that a lot of the Connecticut soldiers, U.S. soldiers across the, the nation experienced on their way to Arizona or Texas, thinking that they would at some point make it into Mexico and actually see combat. The reference here to storming the heights of Chapultepec 
Thomas Seymour from Hartford was in the U.S. Army in, during the Mexican War in 1846, and he is reputed to have scaled the heights of the, the uh, fort at Chapultepec and taken down the Mexican flag. He was later the governor of Connecticut. Mission, he was on the, in the mission to Russia in the 1850s, and he was a, a good friend of Colonel Samuel Cole. So while at Niantic, soldiers honed both physical and social skills before departing, most of the photos that you'll see of the, of the actual troops in Niantic and in Arizona, they're from a collection of photographs taken by a Merritt Learned, who was in, from Meriden, he was in the uh, second company, second Connecticut Infantry, and there's probably a, close to a thousand images and his grandson, Alan Learned, lived in Meriden all his life. He's retired now, lives in Florida. Uh, he's kindly let the State Library digitize all these images as part of the, the World War I digitization project. And I had free access to these, and they're, they're, they're great photographs. You know, we're lucky to have the opportunity to ha have these and add them to the collection. There was a diary that we acquired from Pr Private Ernest Smith, Company L, also the 2nd Company, 2nd Connecticut Infantry. Nothing of importance happened at Niantic, only regular camp routine and rain. Rookies got initiated. Marcus Holcomb, the governor of Connecticut, visited the uh, Connecticut troops at Niantic in June of 1916. He was also a big supporter of preparedness, thinking that America was, would ultimately get into the war and it was time to beef up the federal troops. The army was at a very low, low ebb and he was pushing along with Theodore Roosevelt and several other prominent senators and congressmen for what became known as the preparedness movement. Now between the 27th and the 29th of June, there were eight trains of 14 to 17 cars leaving Niantic taking the Connecticut troops and their equipment, their cavalry and draft horses, supply wagons and ambulances to Nogales, Arizona. There's a few photographs from the Learned Collection, the men of Company L's 2nd Regiment standing by their decorated cars. And Captain Strickland uh, wrote, the entire sides of the coaches were covered with slogans and pictures drawn with chalk. Some of these were not very complimentary to the Mexicans, requiring the use of soap and water, much like the treatment mothers used to give little boys for using bad words. I, I learned that in, in the transportation of the soldiers, the officers, of course, got the Pullman cars, the, the club cars. The enlisted men sat three to a seat, which normally accom accommodated two. And it was not a very comfortable ride. I can, I can I can assure you. And this is the route that the Connecticut trains took from uh, Niantic down through New York and Pennsylvania, across the Midwest, down into, uh, they just barely crossed through Texas into New Mexico, ending up at Nogales. Now, looking at this, it looks like it's a fairly simple, oh, we'll get on the train, we'll go down this way to Nogales. But remember that there are about 145,000 other National Guardsmen also taking trains from their hometowns down to the same point. So you've got all these soldiers and trains funneling down to this area along the, the Mexican border pretty much at the same time. The uh, military trains were all, always given priority over, over uh, commercial trains. Uh, 
This, this Captain Strickland also noted that all, all along the route, great crowds gathered to wave and cheer as the trains pulled through the various towns and cities. He also reported that in some of the early stops along the way, the soldiers would be able to disembark and the local young women would be there cheering them on and they would be giving them their addresses and postcards, <laughs> pre-addressed postcards for them to send back. And this is, this is what Nogales, Arizona looked like at the time of the arrival of the Connecticut National Guard. And on the bottom is a, a similar photograph of Nogales, state of Sonora in Mexico, which was this white line that runs down, somebody has superimposed on this. That's actually the border. That, 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 there was no, I hate to say the word wall. <laughs> soldiers were a little bit nervous about that because they could see the Mexican soldiers across across the street with nothing in between them. And the first camp that was erected the day the Nas Connecticut National Guard arrived got flooded out the next day. It was not placed in the most advantageous position and they apparently were not that familiar with the sudden cloudbursts and thunderstorms that rise up in, in the, the Mexican area. So the Connecticut troops reestablished their camp on higher ground, and it was a, a much more, more successful camp. Regular camp routines were quickly established. This was an interesting quote from Tyler Bliss, who was a reporter for the Hartford Current. He was, I guess the current phrase was embedded with the troops in Arizona. He sent almost daily reports back from the time they arrived until the time they, they came back to Connecticut. Another day without event, another day in that long routine of days, a day of drills, of marching, of exercises, or ordinary duties, the sort of day of which we are getting our full share, the sort that makes soldiers but does not make excitement. From now on, we're given to understand most of the days will be of this sort. The novelty is over, the men are used to Arizona, and Arizona is used to the men. Ernest Smith noted on August 18th that the Army YMCA had been erected in camp for use by both officers and enlisted men of the 1st and 2nd Infantry Regiments. It was erected and maintained by Mr. and Mrs. H.W. Scoville of Watertown. Scoville was an officer of the Scoville Brass Company in Waterbury. There was a great deal of you know, back home support. There were any number of people that came down from Connecticut to visit the troops. And uh, there was a lot of you know, mail back and forth. Those postcards to the women, I'm sure they were, they were back and forth all the time. So we have the YMCA as one diversion and as he said the next day, he was on guard at 12.30 p.m. at the Red Light District in Nogales. <laughs> now the infantry regiments undertook marches of gradually longer distances. They had to increase their fitness and as well as their endurance and get acclimated to the high temperatures. But Captain Strickland wrote that when the men arrived, most of them were subjected to very serious nosebleeds that took quite a while to kind of peter out. And he said the sand was so hot that most of the men were walking kind of on the, the sides of their shoes so they wouldn't have to put their feet. He, he claimed the temperature was about 125 on the day they arrived in, in June. So it was, it, was not a, you know, it was not a pleasant place. And I'm sure these guys are in, they're still in their wool uniforms. They, they would take advantage of any opportunity to cool off during the marches. The cavalry also uh, went on maneuvers, exercised their horses daily, and they did practice their skirmish drills. And then each soldier spent time on the rifle ranges. 
And this is a, a, another diary entry from Private Smith about his shooting at the 200 and 300 yards, 300 and 500 yards, and 600 yards. Inspections were held on a regular basis. An outdoor, you know, Troop B federal inspection at Nogales in July of 1916. All their equipment, they have their winter overcoats, their, you know, their bed rolls, their mess kits, all their, all their different uh, pieces of equipment out for the federal inspection. Private Smith mentioned several inspections by the 12th U.S. Army uh, in full equipment on the 12th Army's parade ground at their fort uh, just outside of Nogales. Most of the training that was done for all these National Guard soldiers it was done by the regular Army instructors. And, you know, they were a pretty tough lot. Um, there was no love lost between the regular Army and the National Guard. The regular Army looked down upon the National Guard as, you know, the kind of the, the weekend warrior type of thing and not professional and undertrained and undermotivated. And the, the National Guardsmen looked down upon the regular Army as, I don't know, dilettantes, prigs. There were numerous baseball games held between National Guard companies as, and games between guardsmen and teams from nearby mining camps. The reference to the mining camps is, is important because there were mining camps all over this area of, of Arizona. And I think one of the, the third lecture in this series is going to discuss Samuel Colt's mine in this area. And it's, it's, this, it's the same exact geographical area. And here's Private Merritt Learned, who took most of these photographs that I'm showing. Looks pretty pleased with himself, enjoying a near beer. And the soldier on the on the left, um, I came across an account with going out into the fields on, on their downtime and you know coming back and searching for you know the the native reptile population. There were scorpions and all sorts of things. And they came. A lot of the soldiers came back with with you know little trophies of their of their hunt. Troop B, who had been ordered to Aravaca, Arizona. 46 miles northwest of Nogales in this, on August 7th. They established their camp and began mounted patrols. And apparently, Troop B, of all the cavalry troops in the area, had been selected for this duty because they had the fewest men on sick call, they had the fewest men who never showed up for duty. Their camp in Nogales was the cleanest, so it was kind of, I think they, they appreciated getting out of Nogales and the crowded conditions there. They were up there for about a month. The town of Aravaca is just a small crossroads. Troop B cavalry had patrolled, or they had they had um, explored, and, and uh, in this in these areas, there's a lot of the mines, and there's a lot of large ranches that were threatened or felt threatened, being so close to the to the Mexican border that the uh, that they were they were grateful for the presence of the Troop B cavalry. Infantry regiments also had their own other tours of duty, so to speak. They took their short marches. Uh, most, of the, most of the regiments ended up taking a 60-mile hike to Fort Huachuca. I'm pretty sure they, they followed the road up there and then went cross-country. There are uh, references in some of the, in the diary to marching across, over the mountains and, and then down into Fort Huachuca. Tubac is, is an area, I think, where Samuel Colt's mine was located. Of course, he was here, the mine was there you know, 50 years earlier. This is a postcard from Merritt Learned to his father, and he makes reference to the part of the 10th Colored Cavalry are now stationed at Huachuca. 
The buildings you, are, you see are all barracks and officers' homes. The 10th colored cavalry was the, the famous Buffalo Soldiers. It's a black cavalry unit that was a very distinguished unit at the time. Another card from Private Learned to his father talking about rumors that were rife that Connecticut troops would soon be returning home. He says up at the top, everyone preparing to go home, but I'm not so confident yet. This was September 21st. There's another visit to the camp by uh, Governor Holcomb on the, in late September 1916. Regular camp routine, according to Private Smith, Governor Holcomb visits camp. A short speech by Governor Holcomb in the YMCA at night. Now on Friday the 13th of October 1916, John Sweeney of Troop B says, this was not our unlucky day as we entrained. Reveille at 5.15, we fed the horses, had mess, and fixed up our belongings for the impending trip. The baggage was all loaded by a detail, and at 5.30 p.m. we departed from the Mexican border in Old Nogales. 87 horses and 8 mules. The last of the troops left Nogales on October 24th, and by the end of the month they were all back in Connecticut. And uh, their federal service ended when they were mustered out, uh, the, with the, with the last unit was mustered out on the November 14th. And there were parades in Hartford and New Haven. Some other smaller towns had parades to welcome the troops home. I discovered a lot of the states that had sent National Guard troops to the border also provided them with medals in recognition of their service at the border. Connecticut was not one of those states. I'm not sure why. But there were some souvenirs and, and uh, badges and medals and watch fobs that were, that were available to, to buy as souvenirs. And uh, Merritt Learned makes reference to having one of these watch fobs and you know, all the soldiers getting off the train were buying them in the station. Mm -hmm. There were also commemorative silver-plated lockets. This has USNG, US, United States National Guard, 1916, emblazoned on the cover. And the spoon at the bottom, uh, which shows the campsite, uh, camp life, you know, soldier standing at attention, the eagle, the U.S. eagle and the seal, Mexican border, 1916. That was made by the Wallingford Company in Wallingford, Connecticut. And this is one of the, the few things, the few such things that I found, again, on eBay, uh, commemorating the service of the Company A, the first Connecticut field company, the Sigma Corps. They published their role of honor. It lists all the officers and the men that served in, uh, in Arizona. The U.S. government established the Mexican Border Service Medal in July of 1918, which is a, quite a while after the, all the troops had returned home, but there was a lot of pressure brought by the state delegations to, on Congress to do that. And finally, in, in 1985, the, the National Guard commissioned uh, artist Donna Neary to do a painting, in it, and Neary chose the Connecticut National Guard uh, second Infantry to commemorate the ne the Mexican border campaign. I think it sums everything up pretty well. The the long marches uh, in you know with full equipment, the changeable weather in the background that flooded their camp when they first arrived, the use of you know mechanized equipment such as this great Harley Davidson 1916 motorcycle, and it, I think it captures pretty well the you know the the experience of the National Guard, Connecticut National Guard, in Arizona at the time. Although the Mexican border service of the National Guard has faded from memory, 
its importance should not be overlooked. Within six months of the soldiers' return to their home states, the U.S. entered World War I. The first full-scale mobilization of the Guard resulted in a nucleus of well-trained officers and soldiers who had experienced the rigors of military discipline in a hostile climate and received training on up-to-date military weapons and tactics. They emerged from the experience with increased status as a dependable element of national defense. Many of the Connecticut men who served along the Mexican border later distinguished themselves in combat during World War I when the 1st and 2nd Infantry Regiments were combined into the highly decorated 102nd Regiment during World War I. As the current reporter Tyler Bliss noted, the Connecticut troops' Mexican border experience did indeed make them soldiers. Thank you. I have a question. Yes. Were there confrontations with the Mexicans? I mean, nothing in this. Nothing official. Said. Nothing official. Nothing official. I mean, they're, they're, I think they were hyper vigilant, probably maybe a little trigger happy. There were some, some experiences, there were some shots back and forth, but. That was minimal. Minimal, yeah. yeah. There's, there's one or two references in the Schmidt diary to you know, shots being fired while they were on patrol or out marching or that, but it's nothing. There were no casualties uh, from, from hostile fire, although there were a few casualties along the way. One, one Connecticut soldier fell off the train somewhere out in the Midwest and was killed. There was another soldier that got struck by lightning. But that was, that was about the extent. There was illnesses and there, was, there were constantly soldiers being sent home because they were ill and they, you know, they weren't, they weren't going to... With that heat alone. Yes. Oh. Yeah. And the wool uniforms. Can, is, oh, can't imagine. <laughs> Mary. If you, if you served in the Mexican border, was it likely that you also got called up for France? I don't know if there's a one-to-one -one correlation, but I constantly see that the Adjutant General published after World War One a three-volume series of books listing everybody alphabetically from Connecticut who served in World War One, and there's there's little thumbnail sketches of each man's service and there are a lot but I just I don't know how many so it's possible that you could have ended up having to do the Mexican campaign and yes France yeah wow. the, okay. in, the, in the back of the history of, of the, the troop B cavalry there is a list of everybody in troop B and where they you know what, what they served and it does mention them if they served in World War one and I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of those guys did but when they went to France, they weren't cavalry. They became the 101st Machine Gun Unit. So the, the you know, their days, their mounted days, were were done by the time they got back. Yes, sir. I spent about a month and a half at Fort Huachuca, and oh, I can, both in the winter and then summer in July. <laughs> I can verify that it's cold in the winter when we had snow because it's fairly high elevation. Uh -huh. And in the summer, you know, beautiful sunny day, and then. Almost every afternoon, there'd be a downpour. And uh -huh. I mean, it really came down, and they, all sorts of signs along the highway saying, you know, don't park here during a rainstorm. Just Connecticut State Library about a year or so ago started this uh, Remembering World War One program, and what we're doing is going around various places in the state, some armories and uh, public libraries and other museums and institutions, and we're bringing. Uh, scanners and we can take photographs of things. We're encouraging people to bring in family World War One 
mementos, uniforms, medals, photographs, anything of that sort. And uh, we're scanning it, we're digitizing it, and then it becomes, uh, once the, the, the person signs a waiver, we have the right to put it up on the State Library website. So it's, it's becoming a very large digital collection of Connecticut-related World War I materials that otherwise no one would ever know about. And we've gotten very good response. I was at a, uh, one of these sessions down at the Groton Public Library last week doing the photography for it, and uh, we must have had about, over the course of maybe three or four hours, um, 25 people come in, um, some fantastic photo albums that the person's great-grandmother or someone had put together. There was a, an album put together by a, a, an army nurse from Connecticut. It was, it was that thick and just full of these little photographs. And program director is Christine Pitsley, who's been doing the work, and she just received a grant to fund, I think she said, 12 more sessions this coming year into next year. If there's anything in your family from World War I that you want to have preserved, listening. If you enjoyed this episode, write a review on iTunes. It will help us add to the growing audience for Grading the Nutmeg. We wish to thank Dave Corrigan and the President's College at the University of Hartford. The President's College offers short, modestly priced, non-credit courses for adults taught by leading university professors and scholars. Find out more at hartford.edu slash President's College. This episode was produced by Elizabeth Norman and Patrick O'Sullivan. For more great stories about Connecticut history, including Connecticut Explored Spring Issue about Connecticut in World War I, subscribe at ctexplored.org and purchase the winter 2016-2017 issue about Connecticut's in the American West. In our next episode, in their own words, the experiences of Connecticut trained school teachers on the Western Frontier.